We're going to be looking today at Jude 22 through 25. They hate to leave service. Would y'all be that sad? Like if you got to bail out right now? No, I'm just kidding. And still check it off like, man, I'm awesome. I went to church. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We um, ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom to understand. We pray by your spirit that we would understand it and apply it to our lives. Pray today would be a day um, for some, maybe for the very first time to understand and believe the gospel. And we ask you to do this by your power in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we've been doing, usually we do books of the Bible and we start in the first chapter and go all the way through. Uh, kind of taking a break from that, just finished First John and we are looking at Jude. And we're really just looking at this, the last part of Jude. And uh, we just worked on it last week and then we're looking at it today. And so we're going to be in uh, Jude 22 through 25. Uh, again, if you if you're new to uh, the Bible, it's the next to last book in your Bible. So uh, it's just 25 verses, a very small book. Uh, just to give you a little bit of uh, understanding about what's going on, Jude is, um, there are false teachers that have uh, crept into the church. They're bringing like a false, what you might say, a false gospel or a false belief in God. And th- this is kind of an interesting thing. It, it's hard for sometimes for us to understand this, but it's you might say, why does Jude think he has the right good news or the right gospel? He talks about that and he says he's leaning on the apostles. Uh, the apostles walked with Jesus. They talked to Jesus. They were taught by Jesus. They met with Jesus after the resurrection. The apostles were the people that solidified the gospel, the good news, the, the, the Bible. They laid that out. And so it's very important, I think, for you and I to understand that the gospel message was solidified by the men who were eyewitness testimonies to Christ and what he's done. And so I just think that's important for us as we're working through. And um, I think we, we need to know that. And so if we're when we're looking at this, we understand that that's how they understood what was taking place. And in Jude's uh, case, he, he's holding fast to that. So I want you to um, I want you to keep that in your mind. And then. Also, just to know that like Jude was going to just speak to them in, in a very, uh, uh, I don't know what you would say, in a way that would just kind of build up their faith. And then he kind of heard about or somehow experienced what was going on in this church. And he decided to write something different. And I want you to look at Jude verses three and four real quick. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what's taking place, and you just kind of have to get that in your mind. He wanted just to write to them about the common salvation, but he said there's something going on here in the church where people have crept in, they've snuck in unnoticed, and they need to be addressed. And the church needs to hold fast to the true message delivered to them by the apostles. Uh, I think it's important that we understand, and this is just something, it's hard for us to, to grasp this sometime, but we are at war, and, and it's not like a war against, uh, we're, we're out like saying, hey, go get your guns out, and like, or, you know, like barricade yourself in your house and have a bunch of like meals ready to eat and like, you know, setting up and get all your shells. And I mean, I have friends like that and they get everything ready and they're ready for this fight. That's not the war. The war is for the truth. 
And so the church battles with that all the way through. There's this fierce enemy, if you believe the biblical teaching, that is seeking to undermine the work that God is doing on earth. And that's Satan. So we would say he is at war trying to undermine that and destroy the work that God is doing, which is rescuing people and bringing them back to himself. People who are alienated get to be brought into the family and the enemy seeks to bring destruction and destroy every great movie that you've ever seen so action movie or drama or whatever there's always at most of the time you would say in order for the story to be built there's someone that's going to antagonize the work that's trying to be done and so that's kind of what you see and, and that is what the bible presents very clearly for us so we have to be on guard and be ready and be prepared and uh, i don't know if y'all have ever prepared for like a sporting event or something and you work really hard maybe you're going to run a marathon you don't just show up the day of the marathon be like i'm ready dude i'm ready i'm going to do this and then about like a hundred yards in like you're i don't know i don't know if i can make it now you prepare and you go through this process and you work on that and jude says in the christian life you work very hard and what do we work hard at Keeping ourselves in the love of God is what he'll say. And how do we do that? Like, how does somebody, uh, you know, exercise spiritually? I mean, that's kind of the idea. How do they grow spiritually? How do they keep building themselves up? He lays this out in verses. And again, we're looking at 22 through 25 today. I'm giving you a little background. And this is kind of moving through 17 through 21. He says, you build yourself up on your most holy faith. You pray in the spirit and you wait for Jesus return. And that that takes work. There's a level of rigor that's involved in that. We don't just kind of like grow in the Christian life by sitting still. We actually engage ourselves. You don't grow in anything by sitting still. That's crazy to think that. And that thing is kind of crazy sometimes in the church where people say, look, man, I'm going to work real hard at my hobbies. I'm going to work real hard at work. I'm going to work real hard at my education. And then I'm going to like chill when it comes to the church or my spiritual life. I I can do that. It's cool. God's cool with that. I'm cool with that. It's not true. It doesn't work that way. You keep working at it. And so there's this rigor that keeps you alert, that keeps you prepared and able to fight battles. To be prepared to fight the battle in your mind, to be prepared to fight the battle in the hearts of your family. All of those things require a level of commitment. You can't just show up. It's not like you come to church and say, like a football game and say, I hope he dances for me and does the thing and makes a good throw or whatever. And I can catch it and it'll be fun. It's not like that. You're on the team. And so it's, it's very important that Jude kind of presents that to us, that we are trying to keep our focus on the gospel. We're trying to keep our children's focus on the gospel. We're trying to keep brothers and sisters in Christ focus on the gospel. And we're fighting to do that with all of our might. So last week, he emphasized in 17 through 21, our personal kind of, and corporate level of like preparing ourselves for battle. This week, he's going to say, as you look at 23 through 25, he's going to say, you have a responsibility to one another and you have to know that God is keeping you. So you're keeping yourself in the love of God. Today, we're saying you have responsibility to help others stay in the love of God. And then finally, we're saying to some to 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 one another that God is working on our behalf to get this accomplished, to bring this to pass. So I'm going to read Jude 17 through 21, and then we'll jump into our study today. But you remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, by the way, 
the last time, the way that the early church, the apostles understood this, it started when Jesus came in his ministry. As he like finishes his ministry and ascends into heaven, the last times have begun. And so there in the last times, there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so we see that he's saying, look, keep yourselves there rigorously pursue the things of God so that you're growing and moving forward. And then this week we're saying reach out to others. So you'll see that in verses 22 and 23. By the way, if you've ever been with someone, I mean, it could be a lot of different things that you've done where they were um, really good at something. You ever met somebody that's really good? Maybe they're really good at sports or maybe a particular sport. Maybe they're really good at duck hunting, something like that. There's a guy here. I've educated him and trained him and all that stuff. And I was like, son, let me explain something to you. Keep your head down. He gets all giddy when the ducks come in. But here's the deal. Uh, when you're good at something and you really learn it, and you, you've got it in your mind, you're able to take somebody and say, man, this is how you do that. You're able to do that well because... You've kind of like honed the skills over time. It's not something where you would say, I've got the Christian life down. I'm awesome. I'm better than everybody. It's not that. It's just that if I've studied the Bible for 20 years, I can sit down with somebody and help them learn how, right? Or, or five years or whatever, because if they're new at it, it's like they're trying to figure that out. And so there's things that you grow and learn. And we all do that. You do that in your occupation. You do that in your activities. All of us do that. And so he's saying, like, reach out to others. He's saying, get yourself healthy. Some people say, well, my whole life, I'm just going to kind of live on the edges and kind of chill out and not do anything in this way. I mean, the spiritual things like that's a good thing. I'm all about like, you know, knowing God, that's cool. It's good for you or whatever. But the deal is, is we're trying to pursue. Pursue God faithfully so that we can help other people because we don't want to be the most selfish people on the planet. We want to serve people. And so we're always seeking to invest our lives in others. And so he says, reach out to other people. I was thinking there's just a lot of different ways in which we do this on a daily basis. And sometimes, spiritually speaking, we just think, nah, not, I'm not there, there or whatever. And, and I'll say this too. The way, one of the best ways, again... Even in the world that you live in, the best ways to learn how to do something well is teach somebody else. I mean, it's just, I mean, it just is. Like, you sit down and teach somebody, you're like, you start doing it, and you're like, oh, man, I thought I understood this. And then I grow more, and I grow more, and I grow more, and it becomes normal for me to do so. And so, we, we um, I think it's important, too, to think, too, like, when you're thinking about investing in others, have you... um. Maybe uh, let's say you could make a lot of money. Let's say you knew how to do that and you started making money or whatever. And you all you decide to do with that money is just what the Bible speaks of. Jesus talked about the, the man he called fool. He built the biggest barns. He just kept building bigger barns. He just kept building more for himself. He was like, you fool, what are you doing? And I think what we have to say is like, just if, if you could make money, then what, what would be the goal of that as a Christian be to invest in others? 
to help them and, and, and to help ministries grow and to help things happen and to, to help see other people succeed and do well and be provided for. That's something we would do. Now, in the Christian life, if you've been entrusted with a lot of spiritual things, wouldn't it be the same thing to say, if you just sit there and you swallow all this stuff up and it runs around in your mind and you love to think about it and you love to talk about it, but you don't want to pour in anybody, are you not in the same way kind of? Just like taking and squandering the talents that God has given you. When I mean talents, I mean resources, ability, skills. You're squandering them. It'd be a scary thing to know that God had entrusted to you great things about him. Marvelous things. And you and you say, listen to this. You say, mm, you know what I want to do? I want to be comfortable. Investing in people, getting to know people, loving people, that man, that costs too much. Like to just spend time with others. What if they don't think like I do? That really costs a lot. They don't listen to everything the way I want. They don't want to do exactly what I want. And you're like, hey, get over yourself. You are designed to invest in other people. If you've been given spiritual resources, they are not for you alone. They are for serving other people. We do not want to be thieves, spiritually speaking. I think it's easy to do that. I really do. I think it's easy to do that. Maybe it's the way our church stuff's set up. I mean, I don't know. But in the West, I think sometimes we just like, it's so easy to do it. You think, I'm a consumer. I'm a consumer. I'm a consumer. That's what we think about church. It's consuming. I get what do I get. And we are not designed for that. So, Jude gives three exhortations to these people and says, reach out to others. He says, have mercy, save and show mercy with fear. So we're going to look at this. There's people that have been. Now, here's the thing. If a church, if a church is real consumer, it's a consumer mentality. What happens is over time, the people are so ill prepared. That false teaching comes in and totally rocks their world. Just the way it is. And it comes in oftentimes unnoticed, secretly. And then it shows up and you're like, boom, it's in your face. So when it's here, he's saying, listen, we have a responsibility to pour into others. So we prepare ourselves as a church and we invest in others and invest in others and invest in others. Jude begins with this kind of picture here. He says that maybe you would say verse 22, the first phrase here and have mercy on those who doubt. This is probably those who are least affected by what's been taking place in the church. These people have begun to maybe doubt or waver on their convictions. They've been taught the faith, but they begin to uh, doubt whether what they were taught was correct. And again, like it's not as if Jude's saying, hey, I've got the correct message and nobody else does because I just think it's the correct message and everybody will listen to me. It's not that Jude, he's bringing to them the faith that has been delivered by those who have been with Jesus. Jude actually was with Jesus. He was Jesus's brother, but also the apostles. He rests heavy on them. And so when he's speaking to them, he's not speaking on an authority that he just claims like, hey, I'm the man I know he's doing this based upon what has been given and passed down by the apostles from Jesus. Okay, and so he says Have mercy on those who doubt. Now, I think there are people that are more prone to doubt. I don't know if you've ever been around people like that. 
they just don't, I don't know, they're like what you would, uh, in the disciples, uh, we always call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas, uh, the, the disciples came to Thomas and said, hey, Jesus was resurrected. Thomas was like, unless I see it, it ain't, I don't believe it. And so when Jesus comes to Thomas, he says, and Thomas said, unless I can touch his scars. And Jesus says, touch my scars, Thomas. And he drops his and he says, my Lord and my God. There are people that are going to be more prone to doubt. And, and I, I don't really know why that is. They struggle with that. It's not something I've struggled with as much in my life. But I've met people, man, it's just a battle. It's like, man, I, they struggle with those things. And sometimes, now, just sometimes if you neglect what he talked about, keeping yourself in the love of God, you ne- neglect the faith, you ne- ne- neglect growing in it, you neglect prayer, you neglect uh, thinking about the return of Christ, you neglect the spiritual things that God has given, the means that he's given for us to grow, certainly, I mean, doubt would be a part of that. Uh, w- w- the neglect of it makes you begin to doubt. Even <clears throat> if you think about, and I, I hate to keep using these illustrations because I don't want to like make this not... Um, I don't want to just totally disconnect it from spiritually speaking. God is working in us. We're going to talk about that. But I think even, I don't know if you've ever, uh, like, again, played something or done something, and you're really, you get good at it, and you hone the skill, and then you kind of neglect it, and you come back and you feel a little shaky, you know? Like, you don't have the confidence you had. I mean, you there's a point where you get that confidence, and it's building, and it's growing, but then if you just kind of chill out for a while, and you say, man, I hadn't been on this court for five years, you know, and so you don't have the confidence that you once had. And I would say, spiritually speaking, we, we pursue the things that will build confidence and we have to do that. And so there are people that we have to come alongside who are going to doubt and struggle in the faith. And so you come alongside and say, here's the truth. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. The truth delivered to us by Jesus And I think that's a very important thing that we need to do over and over. Verse 23 says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. The second group of people speaks of of these people who are in a more grave situation. They evidently have like embraced the false teacher's message and their lifestyle. The false teachers were known by rebellion against God. And they've embraced that. And, and at some level, they've embraced it and kind of bought into it. And so they're on the edge. Now, this is kind of one of those things where you say, uh, th- when he says snatching them out of the fire, you might ask, well, what is that? And are these people Christians? Or I mean, you know, we, we don't have to go into all that, I don't think. Because I don't, I, I think very likely <clears throat> some of these people aren't. But, but and I think that would be true of some because some will plunge into the fire. But the idea here is that the church comes alongside someone who's on the edge. Now, when um, if you think about like evil and darkness and uh, judgment and all those things, when you're thinking about that, you realize that um, that's not the way it's presented in this world. Like the enemy of our souls, Satan, is not saying hey, would everybody love to go jump in the fire and burn in eternity for hell? Like, that's not how it's presented. I mean, for, for eternity in hell, what? that's not how it's presented. In this world, you're saying, like, what happens is the enemy of our soul says, look, you want the most enticing, joy-filled life now? Indulge yourself. You, you know this. I mean, everybody knows this. No one would say, hey, if you're trying, you would, you would cloak it in something beautiful. It, I always think about that movie, The Matrix, and there's some place there where the guy's walking along and he, he sees this beautiful woman and they turn around or whatever. And, and maybe he like 
And he's like enticed by her because she's so beautiful. And then he turns back and a guy's like pointing a gun at him. You know, the way that the, the, the way that the world is presented is that it's this beautiful thing only to find too late that, the, that it's really going to destroy you. And so that's kind of what we see here. He's saying, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Some of them are so caught up in that moment, so blown away and so like seeing that and wanting that and pursuing that, that they need to be snatched out of the fire. Jude speaks of this in Jude 7 about Sodom and Gomorrah, who was there. They were in rebellion and they were going to experience the punishment of eternal fire. Revelation 20, 14, and 15 says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. These people, they're, they're on the edge of destruction. They're being drawn into a road that will lead them to total and absolute destruction. The false teachers who are presenting a false Messiah, a false Savior, are drawing them in. Little do they know. They're so blinded that little do they know that it will destroy their soul. So the whole book is talking about the destruction of false teachers and those who follow them will experience their end. The main verb here is to save. Save by snatching out. I've told you uh, this before, but when I was a kid coming back from squirrel hunting with my family, my dad and my grandfather were in the vehicle. We were in the back and we were sitting there and we're driving along. We go down this road that's uh, uh, it's almost like on the edge of a neighborhood and we're driving by. And my uh my dad and them or somebody looks out and says there's smoke coming out of that house and so they pull in real quick my dad runs to find a a phone back in the old days old school go find a phone and he's like calling the the fire department my grandfather gets out and starts beating on the all around he's running around that house beating on it beating on it and say is anybody in there is anybody in there and finally this lady kind of older lady kind of falls out of the house almost like out of the back door and he drags her away and then when she kind of comes to her senses she's trying to run back into the fire and like he's like my grandfather was holding on to her trying to talk her down and saying no you don't want to do that and i mean she was trying to go back and get maybe something that she wanted from that place and then over time as she sat there i mean over the next you know 15 minutes or whatever she was so thankful but in the moment she was so captured by whatever was there that she would have done anything to get back in. And it would have destroyed her. It would have killed her. She would have been lost in it. And I think we have to say in the same way, we have to be about helping snatch, snatching people out of the fire. Uh, I, have you ever, I don't know if y'all, any of y'all have ever been involved like in an intervention where someone is so caught up in drugs or alcohol or whatever that they are, they are like they they're they're destroying themselves. Everybody can see they're on a downward spiral to destruction. And so the family would get together or sometimes a group of friends and say, we've got to do an intervention. And there's people that make a living doing this where they'll go into places. The family will be there and they'll try to get someone into some place or some uh, program that will help them out. They're doing an intervention because those people are out of control and lost. And I think that's what the church does sometimes. The church has to come alongside somebody and say, you're snatching them out of the fire. Just like we would say, 
people get lost in their addictions or whatever. People get lost in worldliness. And so we come alongside and sometimes people would say, well, that doesn't sound very loving. And you're like, are you crazy? If your kid's out playing in the street and you see a big Mack truck coming by and be like, he's having so much fun. I love him. Boom. That's that's nuts. We we jump in and we snatch them out. Brandon, you like that, do you? Okay, all right, all right. Um, you're the only one. Everybody else is like, hmm, I don't know, he's crazy. Now, I'm not saying, like, do that. I'm saying, like, I would snatch my kid out. No. But um, I think that's important to understand. You might even say today, you might be in a place where you lovingly need to be firmly pulled out of the fire. You've been drawn into the world and you, you need somebody to help rescue you. And maybe you need to speak to someone afterwards and say, Help me through this. I think it's important too, man. Have you ever met people that are like so-called Christian people? They're really self-righteous. Boy, they are the man. They got it all together, and nobody is awesome as they are in their minds. They, man, they and they love to look down on people and say, "Man, that's they made their bed. Let them lie in it." And you're like, you know what? You may be the most messed up person in the room. Because you're like a Pharisee. And you will be. I mean, Jesus didn't say Pharisees way to be the most arrogant, self-righteous, hateful people on the planet. Never. It's this idea here. Jude's saying mercy, extend mercy, love people with mercy, show mercy, be known by your mercy, not by your pride and arrogant self-righteousness. You love people. You run into the fire. You drag them out. You do whatever you can. It's not your your goal in life is not to take care of yourself alone. It's not to think me. I'm the most important person in the universe. It's all about me. If it's all about you, you've missed the gospel. The gospel is about us laying aside. We are, when we follow Jesus and we say He laid down His life, we follow Him in laying our lives down in service to others. It's interesting. Sometimes people, it really, as they begin to walk in the Christian faith, they begin to alienate themselves from people who struggle. And they almost think that that's like a badge of honor. We don't hang around anybody like this or that. or whatever. It's like, that's not a badge of honor. That is a horrible picture of a misunderstanding of why Jesus came. When Jesus was on earth, He was not known for being with the smug, self-righteous, have-it-all-together people. He was among those struggling. And if you think the Christian life is about keeping yourself from the world and not investing in it, you have missed it. And so if you say, hey, what I want to do is the last years of my life are going to be spent me doing what I want, kept from any type of people that would in some way make me a little bit uh, uncomfortable. I would say, then you missed it. You're not mature. You're not growing in maturity. That is not a mature response to the gospel. That's a misunderstanding. He says to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I think the point of this is there are some people in such a horrible condition, in such a difficult place, 
that that when you go in to try to save them. You better be careful that you don't fall prey to it. I mean, they always used to do these illustrations. I've seen people do it where, you know, like somebody, you know, this really big, strong, burly guy stands on top of a um, chair and uh, and the, the, you know, the smaller guy grabs him and he yanks him off the chair. And people are like, how did that happen? He's so strong. He he just there's a point where you would have to say, like, when we invest in people and people that are struggling there, there is a place where we're not like exempt. Nobody in here is exempt from sin. It's like it. It is corrupting and it is dangerous. He even speaks of the garment uh, uh, taken over like in the flesh, like, like the fleshy picture of just like how sin permeates even things it touches. And so you have to be really careful as you invest in other people. But it does not give you a card to say, no, I don't pour into others. And I think there's also kind of this picture of like, maybe if we were, I mean, we were talking about that, the issue of like, um, the level, I mean, we we don't teach that alcohol is evil. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's just drunkenness that the Bible teaches is evil. But whenever, like, let's say we had a child maybe that was struggling, like, with just a total, like, debauched life, caught up in alcoholism in such a level that maybe we tried to help them out and uh, they didn't come out. And so maybe we just could start to get to a point where we say, oh, let's just dismiss that struggle and just kind of let that go and, and not not really address it or not really fight against it. Or even maybe begin to think, oh, these things are okay. People can just destroy their lives in this. And and so I think it's important that we as a as a church and as people, as we're pouring into people, we have to recognize that. We have to say sometimes we would we might want to say, well, if I'm really merciful, then I'll just look past their, that struggle and act like it doesn't exist. That's the merciful and loving thing to say, to do. I mean, in the church, you know, it's weird in our world. A lot of times people say, hey, the most loving thing to do is say, uh, just walk past when somebody's house is on fire. That's not how the Bible teaches it. If somebody's really struggling in sin and they can't seem to get out of it, you don't go past and say, hey, I love you, so I'm not going to try to help you out. That's crazy. And so he's saying, as we're going through this, don't allow yourself to even start believing that these things are okay. We have to stand on the principles of God's word and and seek the good of others. Uh, When uh, Tom Schreiner says this text constructs a nice balance between showing love and mercy and maintaining standards of purity and righteousness, showing love for the sinner does not exclude an intense hatred for the corruption brought about by sin. So we need to understand that like it's not we have to see and hold those intention when we're struggling. And that's the deal. It's not like you're sitting. Oh, I'm superior. It, it, the reality is, is we all struggle with sin and we're all fighting this together. And so we have to see that and understand it. Now, verse 24 and 25. So I want you to put this together. We start in 17 through 21. He says, keep yourself in the love of God, man. Get yourself prepared. Work out. Get all that you can, like build yourself up, strengthen yourself as much as you possibly can. Help others be strengthened. When people are struggling, you're always fighting to help them in this process. And then you get to verse 24 and 25 and say, can we do this alone? We would say, absolutely not. This is insane. There's no way we can do this alone. Verse 24 and 25 says that God keeps us. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time now and forever. Now, verse 24 and 25 is what is called like a doxology. I don't that, that may be not be a word you've heard very much. The doxology is like a praise to God. It's it, there are multiple of things like this in the New Testament where you'll say, oh, that was a doxology. This was a doxology where it's just a stop and say, OK, I'm going to praise God for him, what he is doing. Uh, th- that's one of those things that I think is very important. So he's going to praise God for for him keeping his people in the midst of struggle. Their ability to stand firm is not found in their strength, but his. That's just a reality. Deal. We, we need to understand that we do not have the strength to stand on our own. You might say, well, the text says he is able to do this. But a doxology is saying like now, if you were to say that, it's like now to him who is able to do this. It's not saying, well, if God feels like it, he's going to help us stand firm. A doxology is just saying like this is who he is. It's praising him for who he is. And the deal is, is we hear that. And if, as that's spoken, we say, oh, if that's who he is, we can trust he'll keep us. He's going to watch over us. He is with us. It's interesting in Jude 1, it speaks of those who are called, speaking of the church, beloved in God the Father, are kept for Jesus Christ. It's the idea of protection. We are kept. We are held on to. God is working in us. Jesus, right before he went to the cross, he prayed a high priestly prayer. When we say that, we're saying like he intercedes for us. And what he prays is, God, keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. That prayer was according to the will of God and it's answered. God will keep his people. And so you're saying, I'm going to rigorously keep myself in the love of God. I'm going to seek to help other people walk in the love of God. But I'm also in verse 24 and 25 going to trust that God is keeping me. His strength is there. It, it's, it's something I always think about, but like our grip is not as strong as his, but he is holding us. And so although we seek to hold on to him, we know that we are gripped in his grace. He's got us. He's holding us. He's watching over us. He's protecting us. And so I think it's very important that we understand that. God does not promise that a true believer will never sin. He promises that he will preserve us from falling away from him because he's holding on to us. We will not abandon the faith because he has kept us in his faith. He's holding us. So I think it's important that we understand that because we do have a great task ahead of us. This is not an easy. The Christian life is not something that's easy. There's a lot of difficulty, a lot of strain, a lot of rigor, a lot of fighting the good fight. And yet we say God is holding on to us. He will keep me to the end. Verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, both now and forever. Now, just get this in your mind real quick. When he says glory, it signifies God's honor and beauty that's ascribed to him. It's publicly expressed. It's on display. It's to see to see his glory is to be in awe of who he is. His majesty speaks of his greatness, of how worthy he is. Of our honor and praise. His dominion and authority belong to him. This tells us that he is in control. That means that this one who is on display before us, who we should praise and worship, is in control. There's nothing outside of his control. 
There's no one stronger than him. It's not as if this, the enemy of God, Satan, is as strong as God. That's insane. It's not that picture. It is a picture is that he is over all. He is in control of all. When we see him in Revelation 4, he's sitting on the throne with all this chaos going around him in the vision. You would say God is sitting on his throne and he reigns over all. Now, how long? Did, okay. So did God like uh, finally win the battle and be the number one, you know, king of the universe? And is he sitting up there and then everybody else trying to take his place? How long has he been in control? It says before the world began and it will be his forever. So he is all powerful. He has all dominion. He has all authority. He has had it from eternity past. He will have it for eternity future. And so what we're saying in this picture, when you're looking at this, is you're saying, God is keeping us. But we are called upon to keep ourselves in the love of God and help other people keep themselves in the love of God. But God is keeping us. And so it's very important. This is very, very, very encouraging for all of us who are seeking to fight the good fight to finish the faith, to do it well. We need to know that there's one stronger than us, stronger than our wills, stronger than our abilities, stronger than everything, stronger than our emotions. He will and He can keep us. He's done so through Jesus Christ. Jesus came. The Bible presents this, that God the Son, the eternal Son of God, came down from heaven to earth. He walked among us, lived a perfect life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserved. He died on the cross for us so that we would have victory over death, hell, sin, and the grave. And He, was, he rose victoriously over that. And in doing so, it was a declaration that He was victorious over our sin. And so nothing can keep us. Romans says there, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can keep us. From him. So as Christians, we keep ourselves in his love. We seek to help others stay in his love. And we can know that he we can trust that he keeps us in his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that this year will be known by us living in light of these truths. We pray as a church that we would be known by serving other people, by extending mercy. We pray that we would be the most merciful people, the most loving people, the most kind people. That, people, that, that when people hear about us as a church, they know us for our kindness, our generosity, our selflessness, our encouragement. We pray we would be that. We, we pray we would never be known or arrogance, or obstinance, or divisiveness, we would be known by love. We, we pray as a church that we would be known as people who are reaching out to those who are struggling desperately. Not as in a way of saying we're better, but in a way of making people understand that God came to save us, that we can't save ourselves, that we are only humble sinners who have been touched by the master who are kept by him. So, Lord, I just pray that would be true of us. I pray if there's anyone here today who's never really believed that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of the universe and that their only hope is found in him, I pray that they would believe today. In Christ's name, amen.